Let me invite you to join with me in prayer as we begin. Father, we are thankful for this reminder and song that draws our heart towards you and reminds us of the great sacrifice that was made on our behalf of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that he was willing to lay down his life. Um, it's one thing to lay down your life for your, your friends. Few people do that, but it's another thing to lay down your life for your enemies. And that's what Jesus did when he died for us, that while we were still sinners, he died and, and he paid the penalty for our sins. And so we're thankful for his um, merciful sacrifice and his example of love. And we pray that our lives would be um, gripped by that truth and it would respond in praise to that truth. May you shape us now through your word as we meet with you today, as we meet with other believers, as we look into your word and, and are changed by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, three books this morning, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, and um, come to a crucial turning point in the history of the Old Testament. Um, this week we'll see the rise of the great King David, and, and uh, if anybody can rival Abraham in the way that God used him to reveal his plan, it would be King David. And these three books uh, center on King David, even though they're called Ruth and Samuel, they actually center on the the rise of King David uh, to the throne. So first, the book of Ruth. We don't know who wrote Ruth. Um, Jewish tradition credits Samuel, Israel's last judge and prophet who will be introduced in a moment. We get the first and second Samuel. It's probably written sometime during the rise or, or the reign of King David, excuse me, uh, one of Israel's first kings. Turn to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll see the, the time period in which the book of Ruth was written, or at least the events took place, I should say. Ruth 1.1, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So there we have, it was during the time when the judges governed. So this should take us back to where we were last week in the book of Judges, where... Um, every, everyone did what was right in his own eyes and there was no king in Israel. And um, so while the, the time period of the judges, 350 years of the, the period of the judges, was largely marked by unbelief and disaster and tragedy and, and turning away from God and then God rescuing them, um, there is a glimmer of hope because Ruth and Boaz actually lived during the time of the judges. And... Um, so, the time of the judges is coming to the end here with Ruth and Boaz, um, but despite the great tragedy, especially when you read through Judges 21, uh, Judges um, 18 to 21, it's, there is this glimmer of hope with Ruth and Boaz, that there are a few who do actually trust God. And so, the theme of Ruth, uh, on your handout there, God is raising up His King to keep the covenant and redeem His people despite the apparent circumstances which suggest that God has forgotten His people. Many of the events here in this book make it appear as if God is far off and not concerned about the nation of Israel, as if God has forgotten them. But the writer wants to make clear that it only looks that way and, and that God actually is working behind the scenes in the circumstances of Ruth and Boaz to bring about His promised king 
um, to the nation of Israel, the one who would um, they would start this line effectively to bring about the the Messiah. Sometimes the best way to see how to uh, understand a story is to look at the endings. So turn to chapter four. And we have a kind of peculiar ending after this. You know, you kind of think that the climax of the story would be that Ruth and, or, yeah, Ruth and Boaz actually get married. You know, after all the tragedy that they had seen, uh, particularly she had seen, and mm-hmm. Naomi and so on. Um, you kind of think that the climax is that. But actually the climax is these last five verses. Look at verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. So uh, what we see here is despite all the events in the book of Ruth where it seems like God is far off, you know, Ruth, Ruth's husband dies. Naomi's left without any kind of inheritance. There's no social security, so um, she's going to have a really de- difficult life. And um, and despite all that, it seems like God's far away. Um, God brings Ruth and Boaz together, and he brings through them this line that goes back to Perez, which is a terrible story in and of itself. You go back to Genesis and read that story. But then it moves forward to David. So it shows that God is connecting Abraham and his descendants, Perez, to Boaz and Ruth, to King David. So God has not forgotten. He has not given up on Israel. He's actually working behind the scenes to accomplish exactly what He wants, even through this um, this uh, Moabitess woman. So um, Boaz here is the kinsman redeemer. Um, which means that a man, when a man died, the man's closest male relative was responsible to take care of his widow by marrying her and then raising up children on her behalf, on his behalf. And I'm sorry. And, and these are called leveret laws, and you can read about them in Deuteronomy 25. But Boaz is her kinsman redeemer. There's another one that actually falls closer in line to Ruth than Boaz, but she, he doesn't want to take responsibility for her and for Naomi, and so. Boaz becomes that one. He he takes the place. And this line leads to um, the line of the king. And this highlights God's sovereignty that when things appear as if they're spiraling out of control, when things appear as if God is far away and unconcerned, um, we can hold fast to His promises that God is even using the difficult circumstances, the, the ones in which He seems farthest away. He's even using those circumstances to bring about exactly what he wants and so in your life today you can be encouraged you know maybe there are some things going on right now that that it feels like god is far away uh, that he's removed and unconcerned about your situation um god maybe not be bringing a king through your family line or something like that but but certainly is accomplishing his purpose and so one of the greatest lessons from ruth is that god is sovereign and in control not only of the good events in our lives, but also the painful ones. And um, so the application is that we should trust God even in the time of storm. So instead of waiting till the end to do all the videos, I thought it would be good for us to just do um, 
Ruth now, then we'll talk about first and second Samuel, then we'll do those last two at the end, alright? Let's watch video on Ruth. Here. It's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book. Naomi, the widow, Ruth, the Moabite, and Boaz, the Israelite one. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how it's all unfolds. Chapter one opens with this line, in the days when the judges and it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive from a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient city. And there the father of the family dies, and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters in law. But so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees, but Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people, and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew, and she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the bargain process. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character, and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain and And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he prays for her that God will reward her so Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel, where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children and land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land, and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow, and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up, and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very quick. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family. And he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day. And he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town tells him. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these reasons together. 
In chapter 4, it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But in the last second, the family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth to Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. So the death of the husband and the son is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing is even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. In this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz. And each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed. And that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story, and that how little God is mentioned. Right, the characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story, and that is brilliant. Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life. But not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer, who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity, combined with Ruth's boldness, to save Naomi. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy, showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Obed, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so, the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. we start these next ones. Um, if we uh, cover enough books, you don't have to listen to me talk at all. Just watch a bunch of uh, art and and conversation about the books. All right, so Ruth really is a prelude to the rise of King Israel, the, the King of Israel, which um, which we um, see when we turn the page to 1 Samuel. The books of First and Second Samuel ri- originally um, were written as one book, called Samuel, 
and um, they're broken into two because they're switched over from Hebrew to Greek. Hebrew's much shorter words. They don't have any vowels. So it all fit on one scroll, 70 foot long by one foot high. And then when they translated over into Greek, it had to fit on two scrolls. It couldn't fit on the one, so that's why we call them First and Second Samuel. It's actually one book, uh, which is why I preached through it in one um, series rather than breaking it up into two because it's not two different books. That's not the case of all the first and seconds of the Bible, by the way. It is for Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. But when you get in the New Testament, those are actually written at different times. So that's why I usually preach those individually. Um, the book of Samuel opens with the story of Israel's last judge, Samuel himself. In fact, the, the first part of the story is really not about any kings at all. It's about Samuel, the first seven chapters. Uh, so we're taking a step forward into the history of Israel, and now the king is going to be crowned during these, this time. And the theme for the books of Samuel is that God will rule over his people through the king whom he chooses and this king has a responsibility to keep the covenant and obey the word of God in order to be a good shepherd of the people. And um, sadly, the, the kings are going to fail um, as time goes on, and we'll see that when we get the kings of Chronicles and so on and into the prophets. But, um, but for now, it's, there's, a good, there's a good foundation at least for the kings to, to follow God. Um, so the first seven chapters are about King Samuel, or I'm sorry, the prophet Samuel. And the prophets were charged with guarding the covenant and bringing the word of God to the people. So the importance of starting out the book about this establishment of the king, kingdom is that Samuel is important to this because he's, he's actually laying the foundation for what's most important about being a king. And that is listening to God, hearing God speak. Here's a, God who, here's a man who speaks on behalf of God and even the king himself is not exempt from listening to the word of God. In fact, the very first thing that the king was supposed to do when he became a king was what? Deuteronomy 17, what was it? Okay, make a copy of the entire Torah. Okay, the, Every part of the Bible that they owned at that time, they need to make a copy for themselves and then read it every day probably not read the entire thing every day, but most likely a portion of it every day. And um, so what God was saying is, listen, my word will be most important in your kingdom. Just like with Joshua, right? The most important thing about you and winning in this conquest and, and competing in this conquest is that you obey me. It's not about military skills. It's not about your acumen or, or, or whatever. It's not about numbers. It's ultimately about um, you obeying my words, faithfulness. To God. So, first chapters uh, eight through fourteen, uh, we have the rise of King Saul. Um, before we get there, we just need to recognize that when Israel asks for a king, they're actually doing so in sin. Now, it wasn't wrong to have a king. There's nothing wrong in having a king. God promised that there would be a king in Deuteronomy, and ultimately the Messiah was going to be the king. So, there's nothing inherently wrong in having a king. The problem was in what. In the way that, right, they did, they actually didn't want God to be their king. They wanted to have a king like the pagans had that could deliver them from battle and that they could kind of just give all their problems over to. And what God says in, uh, to them through Samuel is listen, you know, it's not going to be like you think it is. Because when you make the king your savior, uh, th these fallible kings, that is, when you make these kings your savior, then then actually what you're going to find is they're going to gather a lot of fields for themselves. 
They're going to gather a lot of people for themselves, and they're going to be, in a lot of ways, selfish. And you're going to have less than you have even now. Um, and so God, God um, rebukes them. Uh, um, but whatever the case, in chapter eight, verses nineteen and twenty, the people's heart are set. The hearts are their hearts are set. They wanna, they want to have this king. So let's read those. Let someone read chapter eight, verses nineteen and twenty. So Samuel says, listen, you already have a king. The Lord is your king. He will be your leader. And they're like, no, we don't want that. We want a, actually a human king like the pagans so that he can go out before us and be our judge. And, and so instead of the idea of Leviticus, you know, be holy because I am holy, no longer is that a desire of theirs. Instead, they want to, to be like the pagan nations. And so the people choose Saul. He's tall and handsome. And um, in some sense, God is behind this. Obviously, since God is sovereign over all things, He is, he is um, behind their choice in a sense. But, but, um, but they essentially get what they want. They get a king who looks the part and who may look a little bit um, tough when it comes to battles. But as we know from one of their first key battles against the Philistines, particularly against Goliath, the tallest and most well-equipped man was not willing to go out and fight against him. Saul and God however is gracious to him and actually accomplishes much good through King Saul through the early part of his ministry or the early part of his kingship uh, he seems to want to obey God and to fight his battles and, and so on but, but that quickly comes to an end and so in chapter 15 we have the rise of King David and start, we start to see the decline of King Saul and really from chapter 15 through 2 Samuel 8, we have the story of, of David. David's story um, begins in chapter 15 when he is uh, chosen by Samuel, uh, chosen by God, but anointed by Samuel. Um, Saul, um, sorry, that's, that's actually in chapter 16. But there in chapter 16, God's saying, listen, now you've had your chance to choose a king. That's not working out so well for you. Um, now it's my turn to choose my, uh, my leader for you, my theocratic ruler who will, who will um, serve you in righteousness and have your interest at heart. Now, he won't do it perfectly, as we know. But he's a man who's humble. He's from humble beginnings. He's just a shepherd by trade. And, um, and so he's anointed in chapter 16, verse 13, the Spirit of God rests upon David, and then in verse 14, it actually departs from Saul. So it departs from Saul, and it rests on David. Again, this is talking about the theocratic anointing that God is, is giving some special administrative ability. It doesn't mean that Saul lost his salvation or that David got saved here or anything like that. It's simply a, a way that God would, would, would um, give special ability to the king who is going to rule over his people. Well, as good as Saul was at defeating the Philistines, and much of it was because of um, David's work, uh, David was even better. Um, 
and, and David's the one who all the other kings after him, besides Christ, would be would be um, compared to. You know, um, they weren't as good as their father David, or they were as good. So if you go through the book of Kings, you'll see that over and over again. Turn to Second Samuel chapter five. Here we have a another climax in the story of history, <clears throat> where David finally takes the rule after being chased around for a number of years out in out in the wilderness, um, in much distress, seeing his friend um, Jonathan die, and and then here in in chapter five he he. Um, <clears throat> David finally takes the rule as king over Israel. And then in chapter 6, we have another climax where the Ark of the Covenant is brought to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was this um, item that was made back in Exodus, and it was kept in the most holy place of the tabernacle and later in the temple, and it represented the dwelling place of God, where God would come and meet and be merciful to his people. The mercy seat is where he was enthroned there. And then in chapter 7, we have another climax. So really, chapters 5, David becomes king. Chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant comes to Jerusalem. Chapter 7, God gives this promise to David that's that's, um, uh, going to guarantee that there is a king who will come from his family line. Because David there in chapter 7, you remember, he he says, I want to build a house for you, God. And God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. You want to build a temple for me. Well, you're not going to do that because of the bloodshed. I'm going to have your son do that. Um, but I'm going to build a house for you, a family line. And so chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 is kind of like a crescendo to say that God is at the center of what's going on. And so verse 1 of chapter 7, it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies that the king said to the nation, to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells with within tent curtains. And Nathan said, Go, do all that's in your mind, for the Lord is with you. So he has this idea to build a house. But look at verse 11. Uh, Verse 10, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, God speaking, and will plant them, and they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And by the way, The rest of the text says in verse 11, The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant after you. So it's not going to be a physical house, but it's a a family line, a dynasty that will continue on that fulfills further this promise to Abraham that through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now it becomes more specific in how that promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. And this, like the promise to Abraham, is a unilateral promise. It doesn't say, David, only if you agree to this or if only you obey me, then I'll give you a, a, a dynasty. No, he, he, um, God makes this unilateral promise. So this is unlike the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant was a bilateral covenant agreement. It's like a marriage relationship that both sides have to agree to and they both have to be faithful to one another. Obviously, God's going to hold up his end of the bargain, but Israel would not. And so the the promises go away when when Israel um, fails, but not with the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, you see. And so um, David's going to have this, this son. 
Verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. So here's this family line that's going to come. There are going to be some at the end of verse 14 that are going to commit iniquity, but there's going to be one who comes who will be the, the basis for the eternal kingdom. Not, this is not flowery or metaphorical or embellishment, uh, metaphorical language or embellishment. This is actually real, a real kingdom that is going to last for eternity, and that is because Jesus Christ will sit on its throne, on, on the throne of this kingdom. All right. Um, in chapters 9 through 24, um, so we had kind of have the rise. You're going to see this in the video, but we had kind of have the rise of David here. But then um, chapters 9 through 24 show that David is, is a man and that David is going to die. Um, he's a man in that he sins. Uh, doesn't, you don't have to be... Uh, just because you're human doesn't guarantee that you're a sinner, right? Um, Jesus was human, but he did not sin. So that's what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is David was a fallen human being. He was incapable of being Israel's final eternal king. And so all, with all the good that he did, he still sinned, and he sinned badly. Uh, he sinned terribly, and he died as well. And so because of that, even the best of Israel's kings could not fulfill the role of Messiah. They could not fulfill the role of the one who had crushed the head of the serpent. And that, that only could come through a, the promised Redeemer, the perfect son of David, the perfect son of God. All right. So Ruth and First and Second Samuel comprise an exciting slice of the Old Testament. I love reading and studying through this section, loved um, preaching through it uh, and studying it with you. And um, we kind of leave the section with some unanswered questions. You know, what's going to happen? Is the, the head of the serpent going to be crushed? With whom is it going to be crushed? When is it going to be crushed? And, um, and yet we, we do have a step forward in the progress of God's revelation and what he's doing to bring about final redemption to, to his people. All right, any questions on Ruth, First and Second Samuel? All right, here's the next one. The books of First and Second Samuel. There are two separate books in our modern Bible, but that division is to simply control. It was originally written as one for We're just going to cover the book of First Samuel in this city. So after Israel was rescued from slavery in 